Hi everyone, this is Julie. Welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. This week, Lisa and I are so excited to welcome three local runners, Kelly Scharf, Elizabeth Clore, and Roman Gourlay. First up, we welcome Kelly, who is not only a runner, but also the apparel and shoe buyer for R&J Sports, a local running store, and has been fitting runners in our area for shoes for almost two decades. Kelly is truly an expert in running shoes and shares her knowledge, including the how, the what, and the why behind selecting running shoes, along with her knowledge of the industry, how shoes are made, and why it is so important to use certain criteria to determine which shoe is the right shoe when running a marathon. After Kelly, we welcome two local runners, Roman Gourlay and Elizabeth Clore. Both runners have worn the Nike Vaporfly shoes for their recent marathons and share their experiences. Particularly, they share the criteria that they believe runners should use when deciding to wear the Nike Vaporfly shoe in a marathon, as well as their own experiences and the pros and cons of wearing these shoes with the carbon plate. We hope that this episode is helpful to any runner trying to determine which shoe is the best shoe to wear in their spring marathon. Have a great week, everyone. So we are here today at one of our favorite running haunts, R&J Sports, and we are with Kelly Scherf, one of our running shoe and apparel experts. So we're so happy to have you on the podcast, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for having us here at the store with all the cool uh, shoes and gear and clothes around us. Yeah, we're in the mysterious back room of <laughs> R&J, and we're, su- we're surrounded. We should take a picture. We're surrounded yeah. by shoes everywhere. It's and- like a runner's, like, candy land. You're like, totally shoes, sports bras. Ooh, what's that? What's that? So it's awesome. So thanks for having us. And we thought we'd just start with like a little bit of background. How long, how long have you been here? How long have you been working here? So I've been working here for, I think about, about 20 years. 20 years. Yes. Wow. And do you, you, we know, we know this, but you, you run as well, right? Yeah, I, I <laughs> do. You, you just ran a marathon not long ago. Yeah, I run. I uh, just ran Chicago. So I've been running for, um, let's see, probably close to like 20 years now. I grew up uh, playing tennis. And um, slowly, as when I started working here, I converted over to running. Because so this is R&J Sports, but it used to be racket and jog. That's correct. Right? So to, yeah. that's what Ray, who is the general manager here, was telling us. He used to buy his tennis rackets here, and that's when he started working here as well. So same with you? Yeah. Well, I, we, so we've been in business for 44 years next month. And, um, so my parents own it. So we grew up playing tons of tennis and then he kind of catered to runners. And then as the business progressed, he started catering, catering more towards running and less towards tennis. Um, cause online tennis became a, a huge thing. So. That's interesting. Yeah. So we should say that R and J is a locally owned small business, which we also love that has thrived even in the face of a lot of online internet sales with respect to running as well. Yeah. Yep. That's because runners come here and get very personalized attention, which you cannot get online. This is very true. Yes. So Kelly, tell us um, a little bit about your background with respect to doing fittings for shoes and and how you developed your knowledge base before we start asking you questions about shoes. Um, So 
part of like doing this, so I buy the apparel and the accessories for the stores. And part of doing this is on Saturdays, when I first started doing this 20 years ago, is every Saturday we spent the whole day fitting people for shoes. So not only did you get like a lot of information about product, but then you actually had to spend 10 hours fitting people all day long. So as you kind of fit people, you develop like, like certain like, like, ideas of what people need, what people want, like where injuries come from. Um, you learn the shoes, you learn ways they work, ways they don't work. Um, so it's just developed in a lot. I'd say in the last 10 years has come from working with like you guys and getting to know your runner profiles. And then also like working with Rachel Miller and um, like a lot of PTs and podiatrists and understanding how people get injured. So do you also work a lot with high school and college athletes? Yeah. So we do a lot with like the local, um, like Wooten and BCC, WJ. Those are all um, local high schools. All local high schools. Not as much colleges because they get like funding and then they, because the way they're funded, they usually are sponsored by a specific brand. But if they are sponsored by a specific brand, then some of the co the coaches will reach out to us and ask us what shoes they could recommend to their athletes within that brand. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be a like a helpful resource. So, so tell us why why is it important for runners to get fit for shoes and not just go online or into a store that says you know here are the running shoes and pick something out that looks nice. Why is it important for folks to get fit for shoes? So I think I think. The one thing is there's a ton of misinformation on the internet about shoes. So I think a lot of people go online and they Google about like, let's say they want to know about Brooks Adrenalines. And so they Google like about them. They read a lot of reviews. And I would say that like easily 50% of the re reviews written online are from people who actually have missized themselves. So they're writing these reviews about how the shoes have lost cushion or whatever it is, but it's because they're they're measuring like let's say an eight and they're going with an eight and a half and they're not maybe going with the nine or the nine and a half that they should be and they're saying that the shoe is less cushioned than what it actually is but that's because they size themselves too short. When you, when somebody comes into the store here, what do you, what do you ask them? What do you look at? What's important to 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 consider okay. in fitting a runner? So okay, so and then the next thing is is when you're fitting somebody the. Um, there's like a slew of questions that we go through or like things. So what I like to start off with is, um, are you injured? And then um, who referred you? Because that kind of gives me some information if you're coming from a podiatrist or a physical therapist, something obviously is happening. The next thing would be is what are you training for? Like how much distance are you running? Are you running consistently? Like all of those are really important questions as far as like they're like Injuries they may or may not have. And then from there, we kind of go into, you know, watching them walk, measuring their feet, kind of. Another factor is also what kind of sock they wear, if they're wearing a thick sock, a thin sock. So that also plays into, like, the fit process. You also watch people run outside. We do. And you also look at the shape of people's feet. Right. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know for me, that's a game changer. Yeah, the shape of people's feet is super important because we're looking at like how the person's like the shape of the person's foot fits the shape of the shoe that they're wearing. And a lot of people like are spilling over the edges of the shoes or maybe the shoe is actually like a lot taller or their foot's a lot taller than the actual shoe. So the shoe isn't like as deep as we would like 
it to be. So then you see like the laces on a person's shoe widen. Um, so these are all factors as far as like fitting people for shoes. And I think that's really interesting from a personal note, because for years, I always thought that if one wears a wide shoe, it's because they have a wide foot. That's not necessarily the case. It could be simply that they have a wide toe box right. and a narrow foot. And that's something that you and Ray figured out for me personally. And that has been a game changer because suddenly um, I'm wearing a different shoe that's wide enough to allow my foot to move a little bit differently and probably absorb the cushioning of the shoe and perform a little bit better as a result of wearing a wide shoe, even though I actually have a pretty narrow foot except the toe box. Well, I think there's a lot of misconception. I think that um, there's no like standardization for like building the shoe. So like you might be in a wide shoe, but the shoe might not actually be wide. Like the shoe you're currently running in is not like wide. Like it's actually manufactured kind of on the narrower side. So your wide might be somebody else's B. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why it's important to go in because shoes are just so different. Right. And until you get it on your foot and see how it fits the shape of the shoe, you really can't determine if that's going to be something that's going to hold up for you when you start putting mileage on on the roads. Right. Um, So specifically to Boston, since this is a Boston Marathon podcast or more specifically to spring marathons, when should runners targeting Boston or other spring marathons think about getting that race day pair of shoes? You know, we've been training in shoes for a couple months now, maybe three months, four months. When should we encourage our runners to get another pair of the shoe that's working for them? Well, are you, are they going to wear a different pair of shoes? No, same pair. Let's, let's assume, let's assume we'll get to that next, but okay. let's assume, you know, I got my Mizuno Wave Inspires and I love them and I rotate between a couple pairs but I'm, I'm, these are from maybe, you know, December and last October or something. When, when should I think for an April race, when should I come in and get another pair? So like we go by mileage. So we like to say that shoes last between 300 max 350. I think a lot of people think that shoes can go further than that. I think a lot of people go five or 600 miles in their shoes I mean, so if you're going by 300, you kind of do the math. If you're doing... Right, if I'm going to reach over 300 miles by race day yeah. on, a, on a particular pair of shoes. Now, if, if somebody's not tracking their mileage on their shoes, like I'm pretty bad about that. I just kind of <laughs> roughly go like, oh, it's been a few months. I should go in. Is there a way to look at the shoe or a way to... Is there some, are there some other signs that will tell you like you probably should get another pair before race day? Uh, yeah, the tread will be gone on the bottom of the shoe. So another factor of going into a running store is them taking a look at the tread on the bottom of the shoe and seeing how worn out it is. And the other side of it is that we can see a lot of creases in the EVA. So every time you compress the, the foam, they're actually like kind of like creates lines in it and you can see how much somebody has actually compressed it. So I would say like if you're training for a marathon, you should probably be going through two pairs of shoes during your training and then you should get a new pair before two or three, two or three weeks out from the marathon is what I would say. That's good. Yeah. Good to know. Is there a difference if, if certain people have different styles of running different gates, would it be possible that someone might need a, a new shoe sooner than someone else, depending on the way they run? Sure. For like, for example, like me, I'm not like your average runner. I like tend to be like a little bit heavier. So like my shoe might not last me 300 miles. My shoe might only last me 200 to 250 miles because 
I'm not running as quickly as you are. And then I'm compressing it a bit more. So it's not going to be as much. And then I, so my long run might be four hours. Your might be three. So I'm in it that extra hour. So same mileage maybe. But, same mileage, right, but I'm out there longer. So my shoe might only last me four weeks or six weeks and yours might last you eight. That is very interesting. What about running on the treadmill versus running outside? Is there a difference in wear? Yeah, well, it wears the whole midsole because the contact with the the like actual belt is a little bit different. So you the the whole bottom of the shoe will actually smooth out a little bit oh. as opposed to like seeing a distinct wear pattern when you when right. you go outside. The belt's moving under the bottom of the, as as you're landing. It's kind of moving under your shoe. Yeah. Very interesting. So let's say I'm at R&J and I see that my shoe's being discontinued. So I stock up and I buy a couple pairs. And um, let's say I buy like three pairs and I put one pair away and I break it out a year later. We used to hear over and over that shoes denigrate after a while. Is that still the case based on the way shoes are made now? Is it dependent on the brand or is that a myth? I think it's a myth (laughs) because uh, Ray was telling me yesterday because we were talking about this um, and he was telling me that every... uh, pair of shoes that's in a landfill is still in a landfill so they're not degrading at all (laughs) but now but like brooks they they've come out with biomogo so biomogo they're saying should be 40 years so if you've saved a shoe on the shelf for like for 40 years you can still wear they'll still have the same (laughs) cushioning okay good to good to know sad very sad so similarly let me ask you this let's say i i know my exact style model number of my shoe that's going to be discontinued and I see it at Nordstrom Rack. Okay. Tell me why I shouldn't should or shouldn't buy it at Nordstrom Rack versus buying it at a running store. Are is it true that some of the shoes are not necessarily made from the same factory line? Because that's another myth we've heard. Well, they change factories. Mm -hmm. So like New Balance might like do the 880, make the 880 in like Vietnam for the first round. And then the next round, they might be making it some at another factory. Mm-hmm. So it might not be the same. Um, but it just depends on what version you're going with. So if it's, if you're going from version eight to version nine, you should always go and have your local running store check the fit of the shoe. You should never just go to the next model without asking them questions because they do sometimes make dramatic changes. Right. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that. We've seen that before. So speaking of changes, if a runner uh, decides, you know, this my shoe's a little heavy. Maybe I could, you know, I'll look at all these new shoes coming out. Maybe I should try something different for for my upcoming marathon. How do you recommend runners do that? Like undertake that process. In addition to obviously coming into a running store and talking to the running store, the staff in the running store about trying a different type of shoe. How how, how do you do that during training and then transitioning before marathon day? Well, so if you're trying to go with a new new shoe, like it could be any shoe. It could be like going from like 10 or 12 millimeters to like eight millimeters down to four. Down That's to the drop six, of the shoe, right? The heel drop yep. of the shoe. So going down to zero, you should always make those changes off season because your like the, your stride length will change. And so you can really affect your training by making a change like that mid-training. 
That's good to know. Interesting. So if you're thinking of changing shoes, do that off-season, try it off-season. And is there a process for transitioning the shoes? We usually tell our runners the first week, use it for maybe 25% of your mileage, second week, 50%, third week, 75%. So take about four weeks to fully transition. Is that a good idea or do some people not need that? Well, it depends on like how dramatic a change they're making. So if you're going like 10 or 12 millimeters down to zero, like because they want to try ultra, um, that would be probably a longer transition because um, the ground is now like a lot further away from them. And so it's a lot harder on the backs of their legs. Their calves are really fatiguing. So just for clarification, like if you're in the middle of marathon season and you come to R&J and you realize you're wearing the wrong shoe, but it's the same, the shoe is serving the same purpose for distance running, that's okay. But you're saying don't change it mid-season if it's for a different purpose maybe or a different drop. Right. So okay. like if the shoe is not working, mm-hmm. then or they, there's a new model and that model's changed so much that you don't want to switch to that. You'll find a comparable structure shoe in a different brand. Right. That- like we'll work to fit you. If something is not working, you ultimately have to change. But if you're thinking about going to a completely different shoe mid training and there's nothing wrong with your training, you risk jeopardizing your training. Is, is there a reason, would there be a reason in your mind to use a different shoe for training versus racing versus doing track work? Do you, do you think that's beneficial for runners? Um, it just depends on what type of runner you are, like how efficient you are. That's a good point. Because if you're not like, like, for example, for me, like I'm not running fast enough necessarily to like wear like a lightweight trainer Like, so it's not, I'm just giving more like impact to my body and I'm not as efficient. Like, so the shoe that I'm currently running in is perfectly fine for me because like, like I'm not gaining anything. Like I'm trying to go from 445 to 430. But if you're talking about like somebody who's super efficient and they're not over pronating and um, their cadence is super high, then they could absolutely have like more tools in their toolbox and they could be, you know, doing their track workouts and lightweight trainers, um, to make a difference in their training. Absolutely. So that leads us to our next set of questions. Um, and that is, we want to talk to you about the Nike Vaporfly. Um, and that is because it's all over the news since Kipchoge was able to, um, run the initial sub Two in this in the vaporflies, everyone has taken note um, that they seem to be like a magic carpet that we can wear on our feet. Um, free speed, but not free. But and <laughs> then speed. Just, just speed, right? And um, before we go into the technology and everything, I noticed last year for the first time as a spectator of Boston that. Um, Boston is, is the runners are seated by time. And I would say about 50% of the runners in the, in the, um, first wave were wearing vapor flies. So it was, it was really striking. So that being said, um, tell us a little bit about the history of the development of the vapor fly technology and, and what it's about for those who may not know. Okay. So, well, we don't actually carry Nike here. So that's like a, like, so we carried Nike for 41 years and then Nike decided that um, like, we didn't kind of like fall under their umbrella. Like we choose to fit customers like a very specific way based on 
exactly what they need. Like we don't do um, like spiffs or anything like that. So spiffs are incentives for retailers to sell a particular brand. And we have never actually done a spiff. Yeah. So we fit. That's a good question when you go into a, I think into a, into a running store and you're getting fit for shoes is to ask them, do you do spiffs? Because then you know there's some, you know, some other factors coming into play in their recommendations. I always thought that was interesting. So, um, so Nike's been like a tougher sell for us because they just haven't really like, it's not that they don't keep up on technology. It's just their fits are very like specific. It's a very narrow fitting shoe. It's a very narrow fitting base. So Nike decided that we didn't really fit into their criteria for selling their shoes. So we carry all the other brands. Um, and uh, so recently we discovered that um, Hoka was actually the originator of the, the Vaporfly. The technology um, in the Vaporfly, the, right? The technology. Yeah. And that technology, for those who may not know, is the carbon plate. Right. And the carbon plate fits from what I understand between the bottom of the foot and the cushioning. There's yes. a plate and it propels the runner. It propels. It's spring. a spring. It's a spring. Mm-hmm. It's a spring. Yeah. It's, it launches mm-hmm. the runner forward. So the carbon plate was initially used by Hoka. So the designer designed the shoe, the Carbon X in Hoka and then Nike hired that designer away. And so Nike brought it to market first. That's why the the midsole on the heel is so thick it's 40 millimeters because you have this hoka-esque shoe now in nike so interesting and nike then patented the carbon plate right so that no one else can take that technology um specifically they can they can emulate it to the best of their ability right. but the technology the plate i believe is patented yeah the, i'm i'm sure it is so you have them, but now you have everyone else coming out with some version of it. Hoka came out with it. Asics has launched theirs. Um, the Hyperion Racer by Brooks is about to come out. Um, and then you'll have, I think, Saucony and New Balance will be releasing. So this version. is like the wave of the, this is the direction. <laughs> this is the, going this is the wave of mechanical doping. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, okay. it's interesting. <laughs> but what's great is that when this wave um, attaches to other shoes, it gives customers options. It gives runners options because what we want to talk to talk about with you is what happens when a runner goes and orders online these shoes and what are your thoughts about it? I understand you don't sell Nike, but you know so much about the product. Everyone who's wearing them in these races is not necessarily specifically being fitted. They just want these shoes. They're, they're, they're desperate to find them because <laughs> they're not that easy to find and they're expensive. So, well, I think like, let's see, like, yes, this is all true. Everybody wants them because they want to leg up on competition, right? Like, why not? Like if you can cut off a few minutes on your marathon, you can qualify for Boston. Why wouldn't you give yourself that advantage? And you were telling us a story this morning of uh, an Olympic trial qualifier you've spoken to who feels like they have to get the shoe to stay on level ground with the other competitors, which is really yeah uh, telling as well. I mean, do you blame them? No. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. I mean, I don't, but, but talk to us and tell us what are the risks? Yeah. <laughs> well, so I think like it's such a specific fit. So like, for example, on track on Tuesday nights, 
I see there's a group of like six or seven runners who, who show up and they're running in them. And like, I would say 50% of them are fine running and the other 50% the shoe just does not fit. So meaning that the, the base on the shoe is so narrow and their foot is actually wider than the base. And so you're seeing the foot actually land on the medial side and the person is having to recover. So they're having to go back out to the lateral side. So they're actually wasting energy, right? Like, landing on the medial and then coming back out. And they don't really realize, they think they're in this amazing technology and they're getting the benefits of it, but they're actually working harder to push themselves forward. And that's on the track. What happens when you take that shoe and you try to run 26.2 miles in a shoe? What can can happen if that's happening all 26.2 miles? I mean, I think the kinetic chain will break down, right? Like you'll see if they're if they're overpronating the shoe because these shoes are not designed for people who overpronate, then everything follows, right? The knee collapses, the hips collapse. That's why when you're talking to somebody, you always ask them like, okay, if you have pain, where's the pain coming from? Is it coming from your knees? Is it coming from your hips? And then you get an idea of where the kinetic chain is kind of like breaking down. So... I mean, most people in the Olympic trials, from what we understand, are going to be wearing these shoes. I would assume they have people or someone supporting them in the shoe world that's looking at that, one would hope. But then you just (laughs) mentioned that someone just ordered an Olympic trials qualifier, is going to Atlanta next week, wearing the shoes sight unseen, and she hasn't worn them yet. And she's going to put those on for the first time and run the Olympic trials qualifier. Marathon. And, and from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, these shoes are not good for a lot of miles. So they're not a shoe you can train and go out and do four or five 20-mile training runs in. They're shoes that you wear for a short run and then you wear them on race day. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think like the – so the when the Brooks guys were in here a few weeks ago, they said max is you get – maybe three marathons out of, out of them. They're capping it at about 100 miles, so you're paying So that's just three marathons. That's like non-eight training. That's just those three marathons, three, and that's it. Three, three races. So, like, my feeling is is that the Vaporflies might be, like, 150. They're a little bit beefier. But, yeah, I mean, it's just – there's not a lot of shoe there. So, like, anything could happen – Again, it all comes back to the fit. If the shoe doesn't fit, it's not going to work. So how do you – if you haven't run in the shoe and you're going to the trials and you're running – Or running Boston or running your, your target marathon. You could – really? You run the risk of potentially getting injured. Yeah. But then you mentioned that when you were at the track the other night, you saw that the shoe was working really well for 50%. 50%. Yeah. So talk to us and tell us what they look like when they were running it and how you could tell it was working well for them. Well, it'd be like pretty much anyone getting into the correct shoe They're, you know, maybe these people aren't landing in the heel. They're more midfoot to forefoot, but it's a really easy stride. They're neutral. They're neutral. Yeah, they're neutral. They're not overpronating. They're not like, like when they're striking, they're not like their foot's not searching. So you're not seeing the foot wobble at all. And they look very natural in them. But that percentage is probably like so low. Like, so that's it's kind of a lucky. Thing, yeah, we're right? talking lucky. like just happened to three be lucky. runners at the track. So, what's the percentage? Do you really think of people running easily in these shoes? I mean, it's probably fairly low. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me that last year when spectating Boston, that most people in the front of the pack 
were wearing these shoes because generally speaking, not everyone, but most people who run that fast are fast partially, if not totally, because they have great efficiency, form, neuromuscular capability, strength, all the things that play into being a solid and strong runner. But there are many people who are fast runners who might not necessarily have perfect form, but they could be this close to that goal, maybe sub three marathon or um, you know, a, a Boston qualifier, whatever that is for an, for a particular age group, what would you say to that runner who comes to you and says, you know what, I, I am, I am, you know, yeah, I'm a minute off. I'm generally, my long run pace is, I always feel good. My PR is, you know, a three Oh five, whatever it is. What do you think? What do you think I should, I should do? So if you are that close to qualifying or you're that close to your goal and you're curious about the technology, I say, why not? Um, Who am I to say that you shouldn't try it? Unless you come in here and maybe you see that they pronate so much or their foot is so wide that (laughs) it is not going to work for them. I mean, you'll usually find me on the track or you can usually pop in and I'll usually check out the shoes. And I mean, my counterpart for FTM, Conroy, he went and got a pair and I mean, he didn't want to tell me at first. (laughs) Because uh, he felt like he was cheating on me, but yeah. um, and then he qualified for Boston in them. I mean, and he felt like that was what he needed. And who am I to say that that's not what you need? Uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier too. Like, is there like a placebo to it? Like, do you feel like this is just what you need to push you over? It's not necessarily the shoe, but that mental the confidence from right. the shoe, right? Yeah. So it's a, that's a great question. Yeah. Good question. So, so switching just gen, back to general general gear, you are here. You're the apparel. What, what is your title? <laughs> you're the apparel buyer, the, right? You yeah. get to buy all the cool stuff here. Do you have any favorite pieces of running gear, running accessories or running gear? So, well, uh, I have <laughs> no, lots. <laughs> tough question. Any, any in particular? So Brooks actually just launched their new uh, bra line, which is behind us at the moment. So we'll see how those are. It's their new run bra collection. I'm excited for that because I think um, the the fabrics are a lot softer. Um, And then I think, so what I'm excited for, like going forward in running is um, a lot of the manufacturers are starting to get behind like going more green. So this year, you'll see a lot more um, product come out that is recycled. So uh, all the athletes at um, the Olympics, like running for ASICs or with ASICs is all recycled product. that's cool. So that's really cool. So I think a lot of the manufacturers have made commitments by 2025, all of the apparel will be recycled. So those are the things I'm super excited about because I think uh, we all need to get behind Going more green. Yeah, especially yeah. with how much we go through gear and how much it ends up, you know, in the donation pile or we're done with it or the shoes are worn out and now they're going to landfills for 40 years. That's, it's yeah. Pretty, it's pretty sad. That is very sad. <laughs> Even just thinking of the amount yeah. of shoes I have in my house that I end up donating here or to another when we have a shoe drive through our, our running club. I, I think if that's just mine, multiply that by hundreds of thousands of runners, millions of runners and how many shoes are going into landfills. I, I have a, another question. Um, have you noticed a trend in terms of um, when people um, have been running for a number of years or as they get older that their feet change or that they require a different type of shoe based on 
age a number of years running. Compressed, just being compressed. Yeah. Whoa, your feet grow as mm-hmm. you age. Yeah, so. I found that out. I had to go up a half size. Remember a couple <laughs> years ago, I had to go up half size. I was like, what? Why are my feet bigger now? So your feet, uh, your feet definitely grow. I wish that were the case for height. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh my God, taller. <laughs> well, you could put hokas on. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but like structurally, I think for women, there's a big change from being um, like going through like pregnancy because um, your ligaments become looser. Mm-hmm. So we see like a lot of people might, they may not overpronate before and then after they come Interesting. back. Interesting. So after having baby, go get refit for shoes. I think there's like some sort of hormone that you release. Yes. Yeah. And, and that ligaments. causes your your ligaments to shift. And it usually takes about 18 months, they say, for everything to kind of come back together, which is why we all need to proceed with caution after having a, a baby and running again. Yes. So that goes for shoes as well. I mean, it would be like, yeah, because you may not overpronate, but now like the the fashion, the foot mm-hmm. is now like a little bit looser, so you may overpronate. It might not be like a significant change, but and then typically most women will go up like at least a half a size after pregnancy because they they've gained that weight and they mm-hmm. put that weight on their feet and now their feet have grown. Yeah. So probably related to that, if, if you've had some sort of uh, body change, whether losing weight or gaining weight, that's other, another reason to maybe get fitted for shoes if, if things aren't working all of a sudden yeah. to make sure that you're wearing the right shoes to support your gait and your body. I think so. For, for us, I think anytime somebody has um, some sort of injury, and I think if you go to a PT office or even a podiatrist, the first thing they might tell you to do is go check your shoes because they can't really address your issues if the base you're walking in isn't the correct base, right? They need to get you from the bottom going mm-hmm. up. So I think the first thing you always need to go do is if you have some sort of injury, go get it checked out and then go get a new pair of shoes or ask your local running store if they see anything going on. Okay. And then related to that, what are your thoughts about orthotics, particularly when you don't necessarily have one prescribed to you by a physician or podiatrist, but instead um, you are a runner and you're looking at the super feet or those general orthotics? What are your thoughts about those? Well, I think, so orthotics are like hard, like the meaning of a getting an over-the-counter orthotic is that the, the orthotic supports the foot. So typically, if it's soft, some people, they want to add cushion to their shoe. Um, So they'd go with something softer. That is not really, like, going to help anything. Some people will come in and they'll go, I want something soft to get up against my foot because I have plantar fasciitis. Well, that's not going to support the fascia, and it's going to continue to allow it to drop and so and tear more. So we always want something hard up against the foot. So I think the best over-the-counter orthotics are super feet. And then if you can't get the specific thing taken care of, like while trying a pair of super feet, then the next step would be going to go see your podiatrist and get fit for orthotics. But not everyone needs the super feet. And especially if you've got a shoe that's already a stability shoe, right? I mean, it's putting a, an insert in a stability shoe helpful for some people. You, well, it's all very specific. We know. It's all very, yeah. So like if, if you're looking to add something and you want a pair, you want to add a pair of super feet, it's not as 
it's not as simple as that because typically if you've been fitted for a pair of shoes and we're adding orthotics to your stability shoe, we're overcorrecting right. now. So we're changing it. Um, so we would want to fit you with the orthotic to the shoe. Um, but I do like Superfeet and I run with them and I like the fact that they make the midsole a little bit more rigid and they don't allow me to sink in as much. So I spend a little less energy like dropping into the shoe and pushing off. So there are benefits to wearing an orthotic. You just, you know, short answer is come in and get make sure yeah, you, like the professionals get, looking at you and fitting you into that shoe. Not just, you're not just buying one off the shelf and fitting, putting in your shoe because you think it feels better. Yeah. And there's like the different colors mean different things. And it's really important to get the information about the different colors. Yeah. Got it. Good point. Well, Kelly, you've been terrific and you've always um, provided wealth of information to us that we find so useful to share with our runners. And we appreciate you sharing your insight about the Vaporfly trend particularly. And we're looking forward to next talking with two runners who have both used the Vaporfly in racing to see what their experience was. But thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks, lady. Thanks, Kelly. Roman, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. And um, we are really excited to have you on. You are a huge supporter of our podcast, which we so appreciate. But you are a tremendous runner. And um, before we start talking shoes with you, why don't you give our listeners a little background about you and your running journey? Cool. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh Always glad to talk to you guys because you guys are doing an amazing job. <clears throat> so a little bit about me. I used to run cross country and track in high school, but nothing uh, too seriously. Um, after that, I ran, you know, just a short runs, um, a few 5Ks, 10Ks here and there. But, you know, again, nothing too competitively. And then about four years ago, I decided to change my lifestyle from the uh, Washington, D.C. happy hour circuit into... Uh, trying to be the best person that I could be. So along with that, I quit drinking, um, started eating a lot healthier, uh, moved a lot more towards plant-based uh, diet, um, gave up sugars, stuff like that. And along the way, I kept, uh, I was training with the Montgomery County Roadrunners Experienced Marathon Program, and I kept moving up uh, into the faster and faster pace groups until I finally got to the to the front group. And from there, uh, along the way, I was running marathons and <clears throat> started uh, getting better at my races and finally hit the sub three barrier uh, three years ago. And how, what was your uh, initial marathon time? Um, my first marathon that I ran for time was a 317. So I barely missed a BQ and I attribute that to the old lifestyle. And so did that motivate you to change your lifestyle when you saw how fast you were naturally? Um, and how close you were to a BQ, was that sort of one of your motivators? Absolutely. And what, what did you do? between? So what was the, the next marathon after that? How, how much did you cut down your time um, between that first marathon and your next marathon? Um, I cut it down to a 309. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. And what and do you that attribute that a, to, that difference, other than cleaner living? Anything else that you did differently? Well, I started focusing more on my training. Uh, started you know, really dialing in uh, everything from the shoes that I wear to um, how I, everything that I do. So it's like the weight room, like strength training more, 
starting to incorporate yoga, uh, different wellness, things like that. That's great. And are you on a total plant-based diet? I am not. I am not. I eat a, so I have one big weakness and that is uh, pizza. So I eat a lot of cheese pizza. We can understand that. Than- Pizza's really good. Especially, it's like something I know I personally crave when I'm running a lot of miles. Cause Ch- chocolate's on a yeah. plant-based diet, yeah. right? Is chocolate, <laughs> chocolate on the plant-based diet? Generally, you're, you're pretty plant-based. Is that, is that what you find? I would say, I would say yes. Uh, you know, I will have an occasional ice cream and, um, I do use whey protein. So it's not, it's, and then, um, I do have chicken here and there, uh, if it's, uh, hormone free and free range stuff like that. And, um, I do have eggs and honey. So it's not, it's not completely plant based, but for the most part, I've eliminated all red meats and, and, uh, stuff like that. So let's continue the, the, also the progression of your marathon. So first one, 317, then you cut it down to a 309. You, you what, what's your marathon PR? Uh, my marathon PR is a 256. And where was that? That was at Richmond. Wow. And so that, that was probably a huge, um, a huge barrier to get that sub three, well under, well under three. Was there anything you felt that you did differently um, for that marathon that helped you get that sub three goal? Um, yeah, actually, uh, so my first sub three was in Erie the, the year before, but that was a 259. So uh, between there and Richmond um, was the uh, really bad Boston year. Uh, so um, I kind of had a mental block in my head, and I wasn't even sure I was going to run a marathon. But training with XMP and training with the great folks that I train with, uh, a few of them were running Richmond, and they said, uh, we're going to do this. And I decided at the last minute I was going to run with them down there. And so that season we had been, you know, putting in the miles, uh, <clears throat> honing in on our, on our gels, our, our nutrition stuff. We'd, we'd been doing a lot of different things. So, uh, we'd also become a lot closer as a, in, in a teamwork kind of spirit, if you will. Um, everybody was really just encouraging everybody and, you know, working as one unit to produce the best results possible. That's great. And so when, in, in this process, did you, did you, look at your shoes and switch shoes and, and feel like maybe your shoes were making a, a somewhat of a difference in, in your performance. It was before Richmond. Um, one of the guys that we run with, uh, Rodney, he had tried out the uh, Nike Zoom flies and also the Vapor flies. And so um, from a price perspective, the, the Zoom fly was going for 150 at the time and the Vapor fly for 250. So I wow. tried out the Zoom the zoom fly uh, which is the same shoe just a you know just a different foam and it's the same upper uh, uh, just a slightly thicker fly knit than the vapor fly and i love the way they fit and had you so worn nike's what, before that i had um i was training in the nike pegasus at the time uh along with some sockenies and uh, adidas boston's and uh, a few other shoes did you did you transition at all to the to the new shoe or did you um, you know, did you use it in training? How did you kind of test it out and see if, it, if you thought it was going to work for you in a marathon? So um, for XMP, we do a lot of track work on Tuesdays. And so the first time that I put them out on the track, I absolutely loved them. And you could just feel the difference, uh, the way the foam was pushing you off and the and the way the carbon plate was when we were doing really fast work. And um, they just really fit my foot nicely. And I knew it was my shoe. I, I could just feel it. And you, and just, just to back up a little, you're, you're a neutral runner, right? I am a neutral runner. Yes. So you've always worn a neutral shoe. 
And you're a pretty fast correct. runner, obviously. Oh, I don't know that I'm fast, but... Uh, <laughs> we think you're fast. But I, <laughs> thank you. And are you, is your foot generally, um, not generally, do you have a narrow or wide foot? Um, I have a, a narrow foot. Okay. So not so putting all well. these things together, it felt like a, a comfortable fit for you when you stepped on the track in them for the first time. So describe to our listeners what they felt like. So the the shoe it has a, a if when you're running fast, it has a very uh, <clears throat> it has a like a spring off kind of, and it puts you in a forward motion. And if you can hold that pace, uh, it just keeps you going. Got um, it. That's the best so you way didn't, I could you describe did, But it. you didn't do any long training runs. You didn't do any of your, you know, 20 milers in those shoes, right? You just wore them for the track and then brought them out for the marathon. Um, so I did do some tempo runs in those. Um, okay. But, you know, the tempo run was, you know, 10, 12 miles. Uh, but I never did a long run in them, no. Yeah. And those shoes are, they have limited limited uh, mileage life lifespan, right? So that's probably... I think they're good for, you know, maybe three, three marathons or maybe up to hundred, 150 miles. So I guess it's probably hard to, to, to use them too much in training without wearing them out. That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. The zoom fly has a little bit more life than the vapor fly. Cause the react foam is a sturdier foam than the, uh, zoom X of the vapor fly has, but, but, um, yeah, they're, they're, they don't have that much use in them. Yeah. So, so tell us in, in your marathon and your, the marathon that you did, I guess it was Richmond was probably the first one in the shoe. And then the subsequent marathons where you've used the, the, you know, future iterations of the shoe, how's it gone? So I used the Vaporfly for the first time in Chicago this last year. Um, and so when I first got the Vaporfly, um, I again, took it out for track practice and it felt super springy, almost like a Jack in the box when when I, when I first got them out on the track. So it took about, I would say 15 miles, 20 miles to, to dial them in before they felt, uh, that like they were runnable for the marathon. But once they were, um, the shoes just feel amazing. Uh, when you, when you say they, dial them in, what do you, what do you mean by that? Do you mean get used to it? Do you mean take away a little of the springiness? What do you mean? Um, I mean, take away a little of the, of the springiness. Um, because when when you first put them on, in my experience, uh, they're very bouncy. Uh, huh. But but a few miles of breaking them in, uh, it gets them where they need to be. Got it. So um, one thing that I noticed, I spectated Boston last year due to my injury, and I had the opportunity to see you run by with Brian Murphy, and you both, and I believe you both had the shoes on. Am I correct? Um, he had the Vaporfly. I had the Zoomfly. They look exactly the same. Okay. So what was interesting was that everyone around you guys had the shoes on and you were um, in the first wave of Boston. So therefore, most of the people around you were running almost the same, if not exact same pace as you were when I got to see you. And interestingly, it, it just, I don't know if you had the same observation. Did you realize that everyone around you was wearing the same shoes? Oh yeah. Uh, you, everybody at the, in the front waves, uh, it's always a sea of orange or green or pink or whatever the vapor fly color is of the moment. Yeah, it was fascinating. And then I also observed that there were quite a few people who were also wearing the shoes later on in the race. Um, so those were individuals likely running closer to um, 8, 830. Uh, based on your experience, I know you're not a shoe expert, but you kind of are because you've been running in these for a while and you've talked a lot about them with other people 
What are your thoughts about whether the shoes are appropriate for different paces? So my my honest thoughts on the Vaporfly is it's the best marathon shoe out there if you can keep a fast pace. Um, and, and when I say a fast pace... And what would you define as a, a fast pace for for purposes of, by way of example? I, in my opinion, I think if you're not carrying anything faster than a... Uh, so if you're if, if anything 715 or faster, I think that they're beneficial. Um, they become really sloppy when you slow down. And I believe... It's because you have uh, more time, the shoe has more time on the ground and, you know, it, it takes away the effectiveness of it. Um, I've seen people like when I, when I've spectated, I've seen the people that are running slower marathons running in these shoes and I, you can, you can pretty much see how it's impacting their form negatively. Um, so, but when you're hitting pace and when you're, and you're moving fast at a, you know, 650, 645, um, you can literally feel it helping you uh, move forward, but you have to you have to have done the training to be able to carry that distance uh, at that speed for the whole twenty six point two. Okay, that's that's great information to know because I don't know how often that's discussed. So that's good to know. Um, so how was your recovery after the shoes? So after Chicago, um, I felt amazing. Like uh, so, I had trained super hard for Chicago. I had put in more work than I'd ever done for any other marathon. I took it at a pace uh, where I felt comfortable. I never really looked at my watch because the GPS doesn't work there. So I used a pace chart, a manual pace chart. Um, but the shoe made the ride that much more incredible. Um, the whole way through, I had a smile. Uh, I never felt tired. My legs never felt fatigued. Um, and then after the race, I still was full of energy. Um, in fact, I felt so good after a few days after the race. It, it didn't feel like any other marathon that I had run before. So I think it was probably a combination of the training plus the Vaporfly that, that helped me with that. Um, and plus just your joy so the, after um, achieving such a big goal. You probably had a lot of adrenaline from that um, residually after the race, don't you think? I did. I did. It was, yeah. uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great race. And it was the, you know... But the shoe definitely made the, the race uh, even more enjoyable. And so um, what happened after Chicago, um, after you recovered so quickly? Oh, well, that's where I got myself injured because I felt so good afterwards that I hit the training uh, right afterwards, no break, and started hitting it harder. And, and then... As uh, in like a couple of days, like right after you got back, right? <laughs> That is correct. So cautionary so tale, I, we always we always warn our runners who come off of great races that they're on a high, but they need to they still need the recovery because that's 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 pretty typical of having a great race and you just want to come back and do do more, but gotta be careful. You definitely gotta be careful. So, you know, now that I've been listening to your podcast and listening to a lot of the great advice that you guys provide, um, you know, one of the things I've now incorporated is rest and recovery. That's awesome. Good. We, we're all for we're all for rest. So, so moving forward, what what's your what's your marathon plan for the spring? The marathon plan for the spring is Boston, um, and I'm going to be racing in the Vaporfly. Uh, I did Chicago in the four percents. I'm going to do uh, Boston in the next percents. Um, awesome. And and the goal there, uh, I have Boston is the one race that I haven't quite uh, conquered yet, if you will. So. Uh, my goal is to hit it as close to three or below uh, this year. 
We have no doubt. You, you've, you've got the experience now. You know you know what you're doing. And if we get some good weather this year, knock on wood. Yeah. I mean, you can't control the weather, but certainly based on your previous times, we have no doubt that you'll achieve your goal, provided the conditions are right, as Lisa just said. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Um, so, Roman, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and your experiences with our listeners. We, we find your experience very valuable. And just as a side note, we're super impressed with your running and just all the things you're doing to be the best runner you can be. And you're also a really nice guy. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, it's always great talking to both of you. I'll see you Sunday at RCA. Definitely. Looking forward, looking forward to it. <laughs> all right, Roman. Right. Have a great, have a great weekend. Take care. Thanks. Thanks you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Elizabeth Clore, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Hi, thank you. So Elizabeth, before we get started, we wanted to ask you, tell us a little bit about your background as a runner, and because this is a Boston Marathon podcast, a little bit about your Boston Marathon experiences. Sure. So I have a long background, uh, which I uh, started running kind of as a fitness treadmill runner all the way back in uh, the year 2000, right after I graduated college. And then I uh, started marathons, my first marathon in 2006, after I had sort of learned about their existence. I think I actually started with a 10K, moved up to a half marathon, and then went to the full in 2006. So that was my first one. So I've been doing about two a year since then, um, and I've completed a total of 26 marathons by now. Oh, um, look at that number. I love it. Yeah, 26 marathons. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Boston will be number 27. And I first thought that, um, well, I first started running and I found out, you know, heard about this Boston marathon. I thought that's, that's for fast people. That's not for me. There's absolutely no way that would ever be me because my first marathon was a 4.46 and, you know, the qualifying time was like over an hour faster. So I was like, that's just ridiculously fast. But um, I kind of kept getting faster from 2006 to 2007 to 2008. And by the time I got to 2008, I had run a 3.51. Wow. Which then made me think, wow, yeah, like I'm in, I'm in striking distance of this. This, this could actually be possible. And so then I put my mind to it back in uh, 2008 and I decided I was going to qualify and that I was capable of it. Well, that was great, but that's also sort of um, when the problems with the anxiety started. And that's, that's sort of the whole premise of my book um, was that I wanted it so badly that I put so much pressure on myself with all of my subsequent marathons that then instead of getting faster, I actually started you know, bonking or getting slower times or, or not even finishing or just having these miserable experiences because of my race anxiety. So um, go back for a second. Tell our listeners yeah. the name of your book and its premise. Sure. So the name of my book is Boston Bound. Uh, it's available on Amazon and a few other online retailers. And the premise of it is about, it's a story. It's my story about how I overcame mental barriers and anxiety uh, and depression in order to qualify for Boston. And it's kind of like a self-help 
memoir. It basically says, here, here's my journey. Here's what I went through. And here is how I overcame those barriers, those mental barriers of anxiety, of depression, of not having confidence, of, of feeling like I wasn't good enough, um, or that feeling of frustration when you try so hard at something and then that race doesn't go your way and after you've invested so many long hours of training. That, I, th- I think that topic, as a coach, that topic definitely resonates with me. And I think it's it's terrific that you wrote a book on something that I think so many runners go through, regardless of the specific goal, but just the anxiety surrounding trying to achieve the goal can sometimes um, diminish the process and, and the fun of what is supposed to be the hobby that we love. Exactly. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. Well, that is fantastic. So you wrote a book and... I don't want to spoil the ending, but I will because you mentioned that you're running Boston this year. How many Bostons have you run? This will be number three. Fantastic. And what you, your first marathon, you ran in a 446. What is your marathon PR now? It is a 315. That's amazing. So um, we may have to have you on the podcast again to talk to you about that journey. But today we're having you on the podcast because... You are a 315 marathoner and yes. you ran Boston last year and talk to us about that experience. So I actually did not run Boston last year. I ran it in 2018 with the rain and wind. Yes. And I ran it in 2016. So I'm on the every other year Got um, it. sort of schedule because I feel like doing Boston every year, it's, it's a big, you know, it's a big to do. It's expensive. The course isn't particularly fast, so if you want to try to PR, it's not great for it. So um, so I sort of choose to do it every other year. So I've done 2016, 2018, and then I'll be doing 2020. The even years. Well, I hope for you yes. that the weather in 2020 is better than 2018. That really isn't asking much <laughs> because pretty much any weather is better than what we had in 2018. I agree. I agree. So where did you achieve your um, 315 PR? I achieved it uh, in Rehoboth Beach. Great. uh, That's a December marathon, yep. And when was that? That was in 2018, December. Okay, so very recently. So Very recently, yes. A little over a year ago. Exactly, yeah. And and in 2019, I ran two, but um, unfortunately, the weather for those was not really PR friendly. So um, unfortunately, no PRs in 2019. And that's okay because not that's every okay. marathon needs to be a PR. Just that's having right. experience is, is always um, miles in the training bank, which is great. Exactly. Totally agree. So um, we are having this conversation because you had mentioned um, on social media that you sustain a pretty serious injury. So talk to me and tell me um, when that occurred and what happened. Yes. So I ran the California International Marathon, uh, commonly known as CIM, this past December of 2019. And I wore the Nike Vaporfly Next Percent. And I went into the race completely injury-free. I had worn them in two separate half marathons and everything was fine. I had worn them on a marathon pace run where it was like 13 miles at marathon pace plus warm up and cool down. So that was a 16 mile run. And I had done all of that and I had no issues. 
whatsoever. So I arrived at the starting line completely confident that the shoe would be fine. Now, and what made you decide to get the shoes? Other, other than the obvious, you wanted that advantage. Did you mm-hmm. already, were you already a Nike fan? Had you worn Nikes and other, other models of Nikes before you decided to get the Vaporflies? Oh, yes, absolutely. So my favorite shoe, which is still my favorite shoe, is the Nike Odyssey React because it is literally a shoe that is so versatile that you can wear on easy runs, long runs, speed work. It's light. It's supportive. It's cushioned. It is, it's fun. It just feels like it's a, it's a fun shoe to run in. So I'm a huge fan of Nike Odyssey React, which I actually, I think is being discontinued now that they have the Infinity React. However, yes, I was a big fan of that. And prior to that, I wore the Nike Lunar Glide and all of my previous marathons were Nike Lunar Glide or Nike Odyssey React. Okay. So you seem like some logical person to want to wear the Vaporflies because you were already loyal to Nike. You knew those shoes worked for you. And yes. um, obviously the carbon plate in the Vaporfly provided an extra advantage that why wouldn't you want to take advantage of that? Yeah. And you know, I was actually an anti-Vaporfly person for like when they first came out or for like a year because I thought that, you know, when I, I don't run, I run for me and I run to see what I can do. So I thought, that, well, you know, if I'm just being in a faster shoe and I set a PR, I don't want to feel like I just PR'd because of a shoe. I want to feel like I PR'd because I legitimately got faster. And so that was sort of my attitude that I had for a while. But then as I sort of got competitive, I thought, well, everybody else seems to be wearing them. And how would I feel if somebody beat me in my age group by like a minute and they were wearing the vapor flies and I wasn't, how would that make me feel? And then I sort of realized that, well, technology is advancing and this is just the way shoes are going. So I might as well just hop on board. So I did. Got it. So you, but you had test driven them quite a bit before you wore them at CIM. Yeah. A 10 K two half marathons and a marathon pace run. Okay. So tell me what happened at CIM. So while I was running the marathon, I didn't feel any, I didn't feel like I was having any issues. But then again, when you're in like the last six miles of a marathon, you're really hurting. So if there's a small pain in your foot, you are likely not to notice that. Sure. So um, CIM had, some people ran really well this past year. For me, with the close to 100% humidity and upper 50s, that's for me not great weather. I don't handle the humidity well. So the race ended up being, um, I ran a 322, which is a, which is a great time, but it wasn't what I was going for. So I started slowing down in the last, uh, eight or nine miles. And I think what happened, and this is my best theory and also my physical therapist's best theory was, uh, I, my form was going, was slipping because I was really struggling. Um, I had bonked due to the humidity and I was just doing whatever I could to put one foot in front of the other. And so since my form was struggling and it was becoming sloppy, the theory is I started to pronate on my left foot. Whereas I normally am a neutral runner, uh, the change in pronation um, put extra strain on the tendon. If I was always a pronator, then that probably wouldn't have been an issue because my feet would have been used to it. But now, all of a sudden, I'm pronating, 
and there's no there's no support like in the Nike Odyssey React or the Lunar Glide or um, other shoes. So my theory is that I started pronating and my form started falling apart. And so after I crossed the finish line and I started walking back to the hotel, I noticed that my foot hurt pretty significantly and then I took the shoe off. And as I took it off, it just started, there was like this burn Ooh. pain in my foot and it, was, and it was really bad. So you got home and I assume you went immediately to seek medical professional help in some fashion. No, and that's the interesting part. So the, my foot hurt uh, sort of the rest of the day, but it, it calmed down. And then the next day on the flight home, like I could feel it a little bit, but then it completely calmed down. And I took a week off of running, as I always do after a marathon. And I, it was like I didn't even feel it. I had forgotten about it, as a matter of fact. So I was, you know, didn't think anything of it. It's like, oh, my foot just have, must have been sore. Maybe the shoe was digging into it and it was irritated. But in any event, it wasn't a problem anymore. So I started running again. First run back, totally fine. Second run, third run. But then fourth run, I'm like, well, what is that feeling in my foot? And I started feeling it again. Um, and then I kind of just kept running until after, you know, maybe a week or a week and a half after that, it got really bad. Now, were and, you running? Um, I assume you weren't running yeah. in the vaporflies. I assume you were running in your other shoes and you were Correct. Yeah. Okay. I was just running in my normal shoe okay. rotation, which is about like four or five different shoes. Um, and are those all so, Nikes or do you wear different brands for training? Different brands. So I have the Nike Odyssey React in there. I have the Adidas Adios. I have the Brooks Ghost and the Mizuno Waverider. Got it. So it still hurt. So then what happened? Yeah. So like, so it started hurting more and more. So I was like, oh man, I should get this addressed. This is actually a thing. And um, so then I went to my uh, sports chiropractor, uh, physical therapist that I always go to these types of things. And he said that it was uh, posterior tibialis tendonitis. And, and obviously it was caused by the vapor fly because I didn't, I didn't have the injury at the start line and I had it obviously at the finish. So uh, we talked about pronation and the fact that like, if you suddenly start pronating and you don't have the support, then yeah, that can cause it. So he gave me exercises to do. I took, I think like four or five days off completely, but he said that, you know, the rest would help, help get it like out of pain, but that wasn't actually going to cure it. Obviously he said that I had taken a full week off after the marathon and that obviously didn't help. So he said, you can't just take time off. You also have to rehab it with exercises. And how's that going? Really good. So Great. I still, I'm now running, you know, 60, 70 miles a week. It's now, oh, wow. I guess it's the, yeah, it's the last week of February. So um, I'm pretty much fully recovered, but like I can, I can kind of feel hints of it, which is why I'm still keeping up with it. But um when I first, I guess when I first started doing the exercises, it was, I think like mid January. And then I've now been doing them for over a month and they really, really helped. So I would say I'm, I'm a back to hundred percent full capacity doing long runs, doing speed work and everything's fine. But, um, I still need to do those exercises because it, it can, it can flare up. I think because I still feel like little bits of it here and there. 
So I'm so glad you're feeling better, first of all. Yes. And um, that's great that you were able to get a diagnosis and, and a cause and, and recognize that there was something you could do and the fact that you're rehabbing it, which is great. But I have yes. to ask you, when you weren't hurting during the marathon, how did you feel in those shoes while running CIM? So I, I thought they were, um, they're very bouncy and it was, it was difficult for me to tell if I was truly being helped by them or not. And, you know, I had the two half marathons that I had run, both of those were PRs in very strong races. However, they weren't like, I wasn't blown away by my times. There were times that my training paces in non-vapor fly shoes had indicated were possible. So when I ran those times, I was like, hmm, that's what, those are the times that I thought I would be running in non-vapor flies. So did these shoes really help me? I wasn't hmm. sure. So I thought, well, maybe in the marathon they would because I had heard that one of the benefits is that they prevent leg fatigue. And that's one of the challenges, obviously, that you get in a marathon that you might not get in a half or a shorter distance. So had the weather been um, more ideal or conducive to like a fast race, I may have been blown away by it. But I don't really, I don't really know. I think I was struggling so much in the humidity that it was hard for me to tell if the shoes were helping. But I, I don't really have any evidence that I can say, yes, these shoes made me run faster. Got it. And for you, the risk of trying it again to see if you could get faster from the shoes, the benefits does Benef not outweigh yes. the risk of injury. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I talked to my physical therapist about that and he said, you know, don't dismiss, dismiss these shoes if you really want to wear them. And since so many people are saying that, yes, they are fast, I would like to have the opportunity to, or the, at least the option of wearing mm -hmm. them. So, um, you know, he said that if I gradually put them into my rotation, if you just save a shoe for a race, then all of a sudden you're doing something different. And when you do something different, that is when an injury is likely to occur. But if you gradually ease your body into something and it's used to it, it's not going to injure you by the time you get to the race. You just have to be very careful about that introduction. Right. Or you just have to, I mean, it's, it's expensive, but you can only put so many miles on these shoes exactly. um, before they start to, the, before they start to be less effective. So it's tricky because right. you want to put them in the rotation, but you don't want to do so much so that it, it, they're not as um, effective during yeah. the race. And I was also worried because these shoes have uh, an eight millimeter drop and I had had Achilles tendonitis in the past. And I know that that came from switching from my normal 10 to 11 millimeter drop, switching down to an eight millimeter drop. And I had these shoes that were, in, they were a Nike shoe. Um, and I started doing all my speed work and all my track workout in them and I loved them, but then I ended up with Achilles tendonitis and I think it was because they were eight millimeter. So mm -hmm. also saying, oh, okay, I'm going to go all in and training. That's not a, that's not a good idea either. So it's a balance of maybe using them once a week and then maybe using them twice a week, that type of thing. So here's the question. Have you decided, are you going to try them again at Boston this year? So here's my thinking as of right now, and I reserve the right to change my mind. <laughs> um, Boston is known for its crazy weather. And as I said earlier, I'm sensitive to the heat. So if it's 
really, if it's going to get over 50, I don't think I have that great of a chance of running like really fast. So if Boston race day comes and it's like perfectly, wonderfully cool weather, light winds, and I am in great shape and I think this could be a huge breakthrough race and a huge PR, you know, I might actually go with the vapor flies to give myself that little extra advantage and have the risk of getting the tendonitis again now that I know how to rehab it. And hopefully it wouldn't do it because I'm continuing to strengthen it. But if the weather is going to be something where I think, yeah, I'm going to have to adjust my goal or not really go for a PR and just enjoy it, then there's no need to wear a fast shoe. I would just wear my normal shoe. Got it. Lastly, um, in terms of your running, generally um, midfoot, heel, front foot, striker. Uh, midfoot. So you have a, you have a nice a nice gait, I would imagine. Yeah. And I, um, I have a very high cadence. I'm normally about 200 steps. That's very high. Um, yes, it's very high. My stride length is, is on the shorter side. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a high cadence midfoot strike. Um, I don't have as much of a forward lean as I'd like, but I would say I have a, uh, a good efficient form and that I was able to maintain that form for those Mm -hmm. half marathons. And that's why I didn't really get into trouble at that distance with the shoe. So um, is there anything that you think our listeners should know about the vapor flies if they're considering the pros and cons of wearing them for uh, Boston this year? Anything that you haven't mentioned before that you think people should know? I would say test them out. And um, I, I mean, I know it's expensive, but I would get a test pair and then I'd get a race pair. And you know, think of it as an investment. You can you can use the training pair for future cycles. Then you have your one pair that all you use it for is races. So it might seem like a big investment to get two pairs now, but um, you'll have them for, for future. I think that's great advice. Elizabeth Clore, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You, um, your story, I think will resonate with a lot of runners. And um, thank you for sharing it. And best of luck in the rest of your training. And we very much hope to meet you in person in Boston this year. Absolutely. Likewise. Thanks, Elizabeth. Bye.